Thank you, Pastor Mark, for that prayer supplication. And, and I do listen carefully as others are praying. Uh, words are important. And I appreciate that disclaimer there. Uh, I, I do. When you said uh, we come not expecting anything new. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's true, brother. You got this old preacher in an old suit. And I'm preaching an old message. So you're not going to get anything new this morning. Not from me. But I'm glad you're here. And I'm honored to have the opportunity to open the Word of God before you uh, this morning. Just treasuring what God's Word means to me as an individual Christian. And I know to many of you as well. I invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles over to Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. In this series of messages through the Gospel of Luke that I have just simply entitled, Follow Me. Because at the heart of, of the Gospel is the call by the Son of God, Savior of the world. Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, to everyone that God has chosen to be a part of His eternal kingdom, His eternal family, is a call. Follow me. Every one of us at some point has to face that question. And we have to answer for ourselves if we choose to follow Jesus Christ. That is the heart of Christianity. It's not about religion. It's not about rituals. It's not about going through a process it's about choosing a lifestyle of following Jesus Christ and being an obedient member of the kingdom of God. So we'll be looking at that. Through these early chapters in the Gospel of Luke, we've, we're seeing Jesus reveal. And, and one of the goals that I have in this series is that for me and for you, with things that you've seen before, heard before, but, but I'm praying that God will give us fresh eyes with which to see the Word of God. I, I pray that God will give us spiritual discernment to learn something new and fresh about Jesus Christ that will endear us to His heart and Him to our hearts and, and cause us to have an even, even deeper fervor to know Him and to love Him and to serve Him because, folks, that's what it boils down to. That's the essence of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And so in these earlier chapters, we've seen wonderful attributes of the Son of God. From the time He was a, a, a baby born in a manger, the angels were proclaiming that the, that the blessed Messiah had arrived and, and how miraculous that was. And at the age of 12, having been left behind at the temple in Jerusalem, how He astounded some of the most astute religious minds of His day with His divine wisdom and, and how Jesus had uh, no problem in putting Satan in His place when He was tempted in the wilderness. We saw Jesus as He worked great divine miracles of healing those who were, were afflicted with, with diseases that disabled them. And we saw how Jesus uh, enabled those who were under bondage to, to demons. He was set free doing miraculous things. But not only that, He was preaching powerfully, divinely authoritative messages that made Him increasingly popular to the general public of that day. He was working powerfully amazing miracles that was attracting to people from all over the region of Galilee and Judea and Samaria. People were coming in droves because they recognized this is not an ordinary rabbi that we're being exposed to here. And he was becoming increasingly popular with the general public. But that same popularity at the same time is making him increasingly a threat and an irritant to the religious leaders in Judaism at that time. 
So you see these two phenomena going on. He's becoming increasingly popular with the public, but at the same time, the religious leadership of Judaism is seeing him as a, an increasing threat. And their common goal, and I'm speaking of the Pharisees and the scribes and sometimes the Sadducees, their common goal at this point is to somehow somehow publicly discredit Jesus' ministry in hopes of maybe disposing of him as a threat also. Having failed to do that in chapter 5 when the, the, the Pharisees and, and the disciples of John were trying to, to question Jesus' association with sinners. They tried to discredit him because of his association with sinners including tax collectors. And they failed there. They failed in their attempt to somehow discredit Jesus by saying that his disciples didn't fast like the other disciples of the Pharisees and John and somehow that Jesus wasn't qualified because of that. Well, Jesus dismantled that argument too as you, fail, as you will remember. So having failed in chapter 5 as we just saw to condemn him in these things his enemies, this this group, this sinister purveyors of unbiblical legalism, if you will, the Sadducees and the scribes, they move on to their next ambush. They're constantly hounding him. They're constantly trailing him. They're constantly watching him, looking for some way, somehow, to trap him, to ambush him. And not only him, but his followers. You know, now they're, chapter 6, they're pulling out what I call the, the heavy spiritual artillery of legalism. As we'll see in just a moment, they're going to pull out the weapon that surely will bring this Jesus down. They're going to catch him in an element of the Jewish faith that will cripple him and dismantle him and destroy him. And that is the subject of the Sabbath. They're determined that they're going to get him on this one area, in this one area. Because they realize that the Sabbath is at the center of the Mosaic Law. But more important to them than the Mosaic Law, it's at the very heart of the Rabbinical Law. And I shared with you last Sunday, or the last message, how the, the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees and the scribes had over generations began to develop a, a very complicated and burdensome system of legalism and laws. They were adding laws upon the laws upon laws so that the average Jew could never, ever expect to fulfill these righteous requirements and be right in God's sight. And at the heart of that system of rabbinical thinking is the subject of the, of the Sabbath. And we'll see that this is where the confrontation takes place. And as we begin in chapter 6 and verse 1, we'll see that Jesus confronts the Pharisees' unbiblical burden of legalism. You can't understand and fully appreciate how tedious the, the, the regulations and the rules that they were heaping up on the shoulders of the average Jew of that day, but Jesus understood that. That's why in Matthew chapter 11 verse 28 Jesus would say to the populace come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden. They were with all of this legalism. Let me give you an example. I was reading out of Dr. John MacArthur's 
commentary on the Gospel of Luke. And he was talking about the regulations of the Sabbath. This is what the Jews, just some, this is just some of the regulations that were being placed on the average Jew of that time. For instance, a person on the Sabbath couldn't carry items. Something lifted in a public place could only be set down in a private place on the Sabbath. An object tossed into the air could be, could be caught with the same hand, but if it was caught with the other hand, it would be a Sabbath violation. If a person had reached out to pick up food with, uh, when the Sabbath began, the food had to be dropped. To bring the arm back while holding the food would be to carry a burden on the Sabbath. It was forbidden to carry anything heavier than a dried fig on the Sabbath. Though something weighing half as much as a fig could be carried two times. A tailor couldn't carry his needle on the Sabbath. A scribe couldn't carry his pen on the Sabbath. A student couldn't carry his books. Only enough ink could be in your pen to write two letters uh, and, and on the Sabbath. A letter could not be sent on the Sabbath, not even by a non-Jew. Clothes couldn't be examined or shaken out on the Sabbath. I wonder what would happen if you had a spider in your drawer. Anyway... <coughs> Because if it killed an insect in that process, that would be work. No fire could be lit or put out. Cold water could be poured into warm, but not warm into cold. Not on the Sabbath. An egg could not be cooked. Not even by placing it in hot sand during the summer. Boy, I tell you, we could have roasted some eggs out there this week. Nothing could be sold or bought. Bathing was forbidden. Now, where was that law when I was growing up as a kid on the farm, trying to talk my way out of a Saturday night bath? Anyway, <laughs> bathing was forbidden. Lest water be spilled on the floor and that be washing the floor. Moving a chair. Now remember, people had dirt floors back then. Moving a chair was not allowed since it might make a rut in a dirt floor, which was too much like plowing. Now this is the get, this is the catch-all right here, ladies. Pay attention. Women were forbidden to look in a mirror on the Sabbath. If they saw white hair, they might be tempted to pull it out. That would be a violation of the Sabbath. So this is just a sample of of the kind of ridiculous legalism that they had built into the the Sabbath of that time. The Jewish Talmud, which is a collection of rabbinical writings of that day, dictates, uh, or, or rather dedicates, 24 chapters. 24 chapters in the Talmud are dedicated just to the subject of the Sabbath. One writer said that a, one, one rabbi spent two and a half years studying just one of those 24 chapters. So you understand... This is a kind of religiosity that Jesus is confronting in his dealings with the Pharisees on this particular occasion. So let's read together beginning in verse 1, chapter 6. Now it happened on the second Sabbath, or in some translations, a Sabbath after the first, that he went through the grain fields, and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answering them said, have you not read this? Jesus is a little sarcastic at this point because they, here they are, religious leaders, scholars in the law. They know this. He says, have you not read this? That what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, 
How he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those who were with him, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. Stop there for a second. You see, number one, their evil intent is to cast the Lord as a blatant violator of the Sabbath. And yet, he turns around and he exposes their very ignorance. You see, uh, of the law, of the Mosaic law. Because Jesus knew full well they were aware of what the Scripture taught. In Deuteronomy, for instance, in chapter 23. Let me just read this so you can make a note in your margin. Go back to it. But listen to what the law allowed according to Deuteronomy. This is not the rabbinical law of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. This is the law. It says in chapter 23 of Deuteronomy, verse 24, When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, And you, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. You see, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, had overlooked in being so meticulous about the letter of the law, they had overlooked the very heart of the law of God. Because right there in Deuteronomy, Jesus knew this, and he knew these Pharisees knew this. Here he is with his disciples, they're journeying. They don't have a livelihood to raise money and what have you, they depend upon others. And so as they're walking along, and, and a lot of times the grain fields would come right across the paths. And all people, the path would go right through a grain field. And so it was, un, it, was, it was not uncommon for people who were journeying and traveling, who didn't have food, to take a head or a few heads of grain, and I'm assuming maybe wheat, the way it sounds, because we used to do that on the farm. We raised wheat, and sometimes we'd be out there in the wheat field during the threshing time, and we'd take a few heads and break them off and, and take and thresh them in our hands, you know, and the seeds, the wheat seeds would fall out, and we would... We would blow away the, 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 the uh, trash and then we'd take the seeds of wheat and pop it in our mouth. And we'd chew on that and after a while it became like dough, chewing gum without the sweet. So this is what Jesus and his disciples are doing. And Jesus knew that the law fully allowed for them to be able to do that. And yet he confronts them with their own ignorance of the very law that they propose that they are trying to promote he not only exposes their willful ignorance of the teachings of the scriptures, but he exposes their hardened hearts and lack of godly compassion. And the way that he does that, there in verse 3, as Jesus is answering, he says, Have you not even read this? What David did when he was hungry? And, 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 and talking about David and his men. He and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread and also gave some to those who were with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. Jesus is referring to an episode in 1 Samuel, chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. If you go back and read it, you'll see where David is on the run as a fugitive from the insane King Saul. And he comes to the tabernacle and there's the priest Ahimelech. And Ahimelech knows David, and, and he, David's on the run, and David simply says to the priest, Look, my men and I, we, we need food. Our, my men are getting weak because they're hungry. 
What do you have? And the, and the priest says, well, I have the five pieces of showbread, the loaves of showbread, which have just been removed from the, 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 the um, table, the, the sacred table, and fresh bread is just put on it. But the law requires that only the priest can eat the showbread. But the priest, out of compassion... Even though the law said that the priests were the only ones that could eat this, he saw the genuine need of David's situation. He understood there was compassion in his heart and he made an exception and gave the bread to David to, for himself and for his men who were traveling with him. And Jesus goes back to that account and says, listen, where is the compassion? It existed in the time of David in the heart of Ahimelech. Ahimelech, by the way, if you read on in chapter 21, tw chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, Ahimelech lost his life because of his compassion for David. Because when the insane king Saul found out about that, he had Ahimelech and all the priests of that tabernacle arrested and brought before him, and he finally had to convince uh, a foreigner to slaughter them. There's a great price for being compassionate and showing the heart of God to others. And yet Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees sarcastically. Like, don't you, don't, don't you even remember that compassion, love, goes along with the law? When, and, and Jesus knew that he and his disciples were in no way violating the law of Moses. Oh yeah, they were violating the laws of the Pharisees. Everybody was. It was impossible to do what these guys had lined out for in their system of legalism. So not only this, but we also see the Lord seizes this opportunity out there in the grain field where the subject of the Sabbath has come up. It's almost as if Jesus turns to them. And let me just, as a footnote, have you ever stopped to think, Try to imagine in your mind how this scene played out. Here's Jesus and his disciples traversing through a grain field on their way, you know, traveling. And, and, and out of nowhere, these Pharisees pop up out of the grain field. I, you know, I had to chuckle as I was writing this, thinking about, I don't know how many of you are Hee Haw fans, but do you remember the cornfield scene where they're out there and all of a sudden, you know, in the cornfield, people pop up, you know, hey, Grandpa, what's for dinner? I mean, was it that ridiculous where this, that were they spying on him, tracking him, pop up from nowhere and say, aha, we caught you. Violating the Sabbath, eating grain. Yeah, harvesting grain. <laughs> I don't know, I'll let your imagination run with that. But Jesus almost turns on his heels to them at that moment and he brings out a thundering point to them. As you look at verse 5, and he said to them, now that he had quieted them with the teachings of the true law, he said to them in verse 5, The Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. And basically what he's saying is, fellas, you have the tail wagging the dog. You can't come to me with your Sabbath regulations and restrictions and tell me what I need to do. Understand who I am. This is not the first time that Jesus has flexed his spiritual must, divine muscles, if you will. Back in chapter 20, uh, uh, back in chapter 5 of Luke, you remember there, in verse, uh, verse 22, Jesus, he was there in, in the house and he was teaching and, and, and they 
they were reasoning, you know, how is it possible that he could read their mind? Back up to, in chapter 5, verse 20. So when he saw their faith, he said to them, Man, your sins are forgiven you. In verse 21, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, he answered and said to them, why are, you so re why are you reasoning in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sin's forgiven you, or say, rise up and walk. But that you may know, look at verse 24, that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. This is the second time here in chapter 6 that Jesus has made it abundantly clear. He uses that term that he is fond of in making reference to himself as the promised Messiah, the Son of Man. In chapter 5, verse 24, he says, I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of God. God and I are one. I have authority over sin. And here he tells the Pharisees in verse 5 of chapter 6, I am the Son of Man. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Who do you think gave the Sabbath? I was the very one that says, you shall keep the Sabbath and remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. On day seven of the creation account, <laughs> it was him who decided, I'm going to initiate a Sabbath. I'm going to, after having worked six days in creating all of creation, heaven and earth, he decided at that point, I will rest. And I will institute this concept of rest. Sabbath simply means rest. Ceased from. God rested. He ceased from his creative divine activity. And the very one who instigated or instituted the Sabbath is saying to them, you're talking to the author. How dare you suggest to me that I don't know what I'm doing on the Sabbath. And he drops this bombshell there in verse 5 in making himself equal with God and the author of the Sabbath. But then as we move further in chapter 6 there, after seeing Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees on the Sabbath, they are bound to determine that somehow they're going to use the subject of the Sabbath to bring Jesus down. So they're setting the next trap. But we find that the Lord... In his infinite wisdom, the Lord traps his adversaries in their own snare. Because you see, they're determined to find some kind of an infraction. So in verse 6, here we are, back on another Sabbath. Except this is not the grain fields that they're in. They're in a synagogue now. Now it happened, verse 6, now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there with whose was there whose right hand was withered. I'll just point out very quickly, that's Dr. Luke for you. All the rest of them just talked about a man with a withered hand, but Luke being the doctor says, oh no, it was his right hand. Realizing how important it was for a person that's right-handed. In other words, if he's got a crippled right hand, then certainly that's crippled him. He's not productive. And so Luke picked up on that. Verse 7, And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. In verse 8, but he knew their thoughts, just like he did over in chapter 5, verse 22. He could read their minds like a book. And he knew their thoughts and said to the man, 
who had the withered hand, Arise and stand. And he rose and stood. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? By the way, there was nothing in the Mosaic Law that prohibited the exercise of compassionate deeds to meet the needs of helping other people. Jesus knew that. And he knew deep in their hearts they knew that. And looking around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. Verse 11, But they, speaking of the Pharisees, were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So you can see the scene. They knew Jesus was coming to the synagogue. They knew Jesus would exercise his right to teach. People would be expecting him to teach. But there, I think it's interesting because unwittingly their plot reveals two things that they believe about Jesus. Number one, this is his adversaries. Number one, they believe that he could heal. As I said, chapter 5, and in previous incidents in, in the Gospel of Luke, they had seen firsthand the divine healing power of Jesus. They knew going into this that number one, Jesus could heal. Which was an admission of his power over disease and over demons. Number two, they knew that Jesus would heal. Because they knew this guy. They knew that he didn't operate from a motive of legalism. They understood that he, motive, he, he operated from a motive of genuine, unselfish love. And he never encountered people who were diseased or demon-possessed that approached him that he did not heal. So in their mind, even though they had to unwittingly acknowledge this about Jesus, or what they believed about Jesus, they felt, we've got the trap. Because as you look there in verse 6, it, it just happened on, the, on another Sabbath, as he entered into the Sabbath, uh, into the synagogue and taught. And a man was there. One commentary I was reading, when writer says, oh, the withered hand man was there. But he wasn't there coincidentally, I promise you. He was, he was a stooge that was staged. He was set up, it was a setup. They planted that man in that, in that congregation that day knowing full well that Jesus would see him. So the perfect trap is set. And yet we see how Jesus masterfully turns their evil trap into a powerful teaching moment. First of all, revealing how far their traditions had departed from the heart of God and his law. Because if you were reading the parallel version in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 12, in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 11, same, same occurrence, but from Matthew's perspective. Jesus in verse 11 says, what, what man is there among you who has one sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath? Will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? 
Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus used that one illustration. He says, any, any one of you, if one of your sheep had fallen into, or any of your livestock had fallen into a pit on the Sabbath, out of mercy to that animal, you would have reached down and helped it get out, even though that could be classified as work on the Sabbath. How much more valuable? You see, so determined to keep the letter of the law, they had absolutely departed from the heart of what the law was all about. They had no real comprehension of the true heart of God. And here was God in their very presence. Imagine how exasperating this is for Jesus Christ. Folks, might I remind you that the, the Son of God sitting or standing in that synagogue looking into the eyes of that hypocritical, legalistic bunch of Pharisees that day was the same God who some 700 plus years before confronted their ancestors. You might say it was their great, 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 great grandfathers, the leaders of the Jews in the time of Isaiah. And listen to what God had said to the leaders of the Jews back then. In chapter 58 of Isaiah verse 6, he says, Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh, your own people? You understand that the, that the Jewish leaders of that day, the priests of Isaiah's day, were committing, had committed the exact same sin. They were building a system of legalism and oppressive laws that had nothing to do with the heart of God and the holiness of God. And they were beating down their people. And God was saying through the prophet Isaiah, Don't you understand? I didn't raise you up to be the shepherds of my people to place oppressive rules and regulations to beat them down and to sap every semblance of hope from their hearts. He says, Oh no. He says, then your light shall break forth like the morning. You, your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst and the pointing of the finger and speak in the wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the, the afflicted soul, then your light will, will dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in the drought and strengthen your bones and you shall be a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Do you hear what God is describing through Isaiah? He's describing what we call revival. He said, you're steeped in a dead religion. You are my people. But if you will shuck off all of these yokes and burdens and these ungodly restrictions... And exercise compassion. God says, look at the wonderful things I will do. I will draw you out of the darkness of your sin. And the light of the gospel will shine through you. You will be what I've called you to be. And that is a light set on a hill. To draw people to God because of your love and your compassion. 
He goes on in verse 12, Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations in many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of the streets to dwell in. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the, the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him and do in your ways, not, not finding your own pleasure, not speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. So some 700 plus years earlier than this incident in the synagogue, the same Jesus had said to a previous generation of Jew, Jewish leaders, if you will abandon this ridiculous religiosity and legalism and come back to the heart of what the law was intended to do, God says, I will bring about a great revival and I will raise you up out of the darkness of your sin and depravity and cause the light of God's glory to shine upon you and you will be blessed and you will be a blessing. Now imagine, here's Jesus 700 years later addressing the, the descendants. Can you imagine how absolutely flabbergasted, frustrated he must have been. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Here we go again. Won't you people ever learn? Folks, the way to the heart of God is not through religion. It's not through rules and regulations. It's through allowing the heart of God to be lived out in us. Jesus uses each one of these confrontations and all the miracles to teach. He's teaching. He's got a band of disciples, actually a multitude of disciples following him, but more importantly, a group. And we'll see that in the next message. Jesus is pouring himself into these men who are watching him and listening to him, these are not wasted lessons. They are learning every day attributes, qualities, wonderful, valuable traits that, that set Jesus apart. Because there's going to come a day where he's going to say, are you going to follow me? And if you're going to make such an eternally life-changing decision, they need to know He is indeed without a shadow of doubt the wonderful, glorious, eternal, sovereign, King of glory, Son of God. And they were learning. They were watching. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 40, we'll get to it Eventually, but Jesus says the pupil is not greater than his teacher. The disciple is not greater than his teacher. But everyone will be like his teacher when he is fully trained, perfectly trained. Jesus' goal is these, these guys will watch him and learn and one day they will represent him. Folks, the Bible is given to you and me. 
as those valuable lessons that the Holy Spirit of God is teaching us. You can't expect to give your life to following after someone that you don't truly, really, fully know and have absolute confidence that He is who He claimed to be and He will do what He said He will do and He is able. And so I urge you, don't waste the moments to learn, to experience, and to take to heart in a new and fresh way who Jesus really is. Like that song we used to sing as a kid, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Every day with Jesus I love Him more and more. The more that we learn about this wonderful Savior of ours who is our Lord, the more we should love Him. And that's what it means to be a disciple. Jesus is calling disciples. You remember I gave you a definition of discipleship. Christian discipleship is a process of development, a lifelong, obedient, personal relationship with Jesus Christ in which He transforms our character into Christ-likeness. And He changes our values into kingdom values. And He involves us in His mission, in our homes, in our church, and in the world. Jesus is not just calling adherents who put their cognitive knowledge in Jesus Jesus is calling people who will give their life if necessary. And that's what a disciple is.